I'm here this morning, as was mentioned earlier, because Pastor Dustin is on vacation. And the text that I'm going to be giving today, I'll have you turn to Luke chapter 1, at verse 1, is one that I was going to use last September in a standalone lesson in the adult Sunday school class. But Dustin picked up on that, and he said, you know, this would be a good introduction to my messages in December, which will be from Luke chapter 1. And so that's why I'm using this particular text uh, today. It was customary among the ancient Greek historians, including the first Jewish, uh, first century Jewish writer, uh, Josephus, to explain and justify their work in a preface, or as this is known as Luke's prologue. Their object was to assure the reader of their capability, that they had taken the di- time to do thorough research, and that they were reliable in what they were reporting in their, their book or their letter. Here then, Luke's prologue, as he introduces his writing, the first four verses of Luke 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We are asked to believe some rather remarkable things as we study the scriptures and hear them preached and taught to us. The miracles, the Bible's full of miracles, Old Testament, New Testament, amazing things. The dead raised, Jesus walking on water, floating axe heads, and on and on it goes. All the remarkable miracles recorded for us in the Word of God. But especially the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, there's kind of a hard thing to hold on to. A man who lived some 2,000 years ago, we're to believe he's somehow alive today. What about heaven and hell? The Bible says they're real places. Oh, come on now. Nobody believes that anymore. And what about this emphasis upon the fact that God is a sovereign God, and he has a plan and purpose, and he's operating through our lives and the lives of the nations? Can we really believe that? So we're asked to believe some unusual things. In the coming weeks, when Pastor Dustin preaches from Luke chapter 1, some very strange things there, and not to mention chapter 2 in the birth of Jesus. So what do we do about this? Well, I hope that this passage will uh, bring a certain amount of comfort for you. There may be some people in this room today who are, that's the way you uh, look at things. You're glad there's a church to go to and you would say you're a Christian, but uh, I'm not quite sure I can really accept all this stuff. Well, listen to what Luke has to write to us. And uh, right at the beginning, before we really get into it, we need to talk about this man, Theophilus. You know what that name right appears there at the end of verse 3? The, word, the name means friend of God. He was a man who was interested in really what happened with Jesus, his teachings, and how this Christianity uh, business, which was not called it then, but uh, it became known as Christianity, how this came about. He's referred to as most excellent Uh, Paul used the same word of respect for Governor Festus in Acts chapter 26. 
So Theophilus, whoever he was, was seemingly a man of some honor and some owed some respect there. Probably he was a Christian. He had been at least taught that. However, he seems to have been assailed with all kinds of uh, criticisms and stories and rumors, and he needed some kind of reliable answers to strengthen his faith. So Luke says, Theophilus, that's why I'm writing this. So pay attention to what I have to say. Let's begin with Luke's credentials. Who is this man? Why should we believe in what he says? Well, first of all, he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. Therefore, he was more objective, quite a bit objective, in talking about things that had happened in Judah, in Palestine, primarily involving Jews. Colossians chapter 4 tells us he was also a physician. He was a doctor. And we pick that up as he ministers to Paul on his journeys, missionary journeys, and also some of the medical terms that Luke alone uses in Luke and also his volume 2 companion of the book of Acts. He was a scientist, not in the sense of beakers and tubes and mixing things, but a man who would obtain information, who would uh, take a close look at it, who was observing this information, comparing things, deducing things, and then he would come to his conclusions. And he was a fellow worker with Paul, and so he had picked up a lot of information from Paul, although Paul was not an eyewitness of Jesus in his public ministry, but nevertheless, Paul would pass on a lot of things to him. In other words, Luke was a very highly cultured author who wrote in flawless and excellent Greek. So he is a man that we can accept what he writes. Some say Luke was not written until the 80s in the first century, but most Bible scholars think he probably this probably was written in the early 60s. Some even say the early 50s, which meant that there was about 25 to 30 years that had gone by since the time of Jesus and his crucifixion, his resurrection. Now that's not a long time, putting it in modern terms. 25 to 30 years was from 1992 to 1997. Well, some of us, I think, most of us were alive at that time. We can think back and think what we were doing. We can talk with people who lived there. We might want to ask them, do you remember what happened on such and such a date back in the late 90s? It's not that far away. So keep that in mind as Luke gets his information. He was a man well-situated in that first century to write this reliable report. And it's based upon many historical sources. So let's look at that, the next thing on the item of our sermon this morning. Luke's sources. Now Luke does not claim himself to have been an eyewitness of Jesus. We need to get that cleared off right away. But he did obtain many first-hand accounts from his sources. We'll talk about that coming up in just a few moments. Much of his transmission would have been oral. People would have talked to him orally with their mouth. But as we shall see, sometimes things were being written down even as he wrote. Archaeologists have confirmed that writing was very common in those days, probably on parchment. They didn't have computers, didn't have typewriters, they had those kinds of things. Nevertheless, as things would happen, and they would think about their contact with Jesus, many of them had heard Jesus talk and preach and teach, and they'd go home and get a piece of parchment or whatever and write some thoughts on it. 
as kind of a little reminder to them of all that had happened. Dr. J.A.C. Van Leeuwen says, it is quite possible that the apostles and first evangelists themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, felt the need of written notes and availed themselves of these for their preaching. It is even highly probable that for this purpose, various events in the life of the Lord, various data from his preaching were committed to writing. So Luke would have had access to written sources, not only people who talked to him orally, but who say, well, look, this is what my, look at my notes here. This is what I wrote down. And Luke would pay attention to something like that. Now, in the uh, English strand, Standard Version that I'm using, the first word, Luke 1-1, is the strange word, inasmuch. That's a phrase we don't use very much at all. The King James Version says, for as much. Just think of the word since, S-I-N-C-E. Since, or since by now, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. At the time of Luke, there were a number of people who had expressed interest in the information about Jesus, including Theophilus. He wanted to know more about Christ and his ministry. But Luke was already aware that there were many others who had already begun to write about Jesus and about his teachings, gather facts about him. John himself says in 1 John chapter 1, uh, he talks about the fact that which we have seen and heard, talking about Jesus, that which we have seen and heard, have touched, have heard, handled the word of life. We have seen him do things, we heard him, we are eyewitnesses. Perhaps you notice in the passage from 2 Peter that was read earlier in the service, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. Keep that thought and that word in mind, eyewitnesses. Luke would be interested to talk with eyewitnesses as he compiled his information. And certainly those of that day who were there, who heard Jesus preach, who viewed the resurrection, and many who viewed his resurrected body, Luke had opportunity to talk to them about the things. The things accomplished among us. Now that word things is interesting. It's, there's a different Greek word than the Greek word rhyma, which refers to things that may or not be true, legends, myths, those kinds of things. He uses a different word, pragmaton, pragmaton, which means actual historical facts, things which really happen. Isn't that interesting that Luke used that word in his prologue here, not the word that, well, I've heard some stories, and I've, these things are floating around here. I thought you might be interested in what they have to say. Luke is saying to Theophilus, he's saying, these were things that actually happened. I talked to people who saw them, who heard Jesus talk and preach. The things accomplished. I talk about Greek. Here's a big, long Greek word. Peple rafo raimenon. I like that one. Peple rafo raimenon. It's a perfect passive participle indicating a permanent state after a completed action. An action has happened. It's completed. There it is. Paul, or Peter, excuse me, Luke says here, a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us that are in concrete, if you will. They're firm. They're solid. You can believe them. They really happened. 
And of course, this all had to do with the fulfillment of God's purpose in history, in the life and ministry of Jesus. It all centers around Him, doesn't it? The Son of God, who the Lord sent to be our Savior and our Lord. But what about these eyewitnesses? What about the ministers of the Word, the message of the good news that sinners can have their sins forgiven and receive eternal life to trust in Jesus and believe in what that He died for them? This happened among us, uh, he says at the end of verse 1. Not just we who believe, but also anybody. A lot of people who don't believe this, they saw some of these things as well. But who were these eyewitnesses? Who were these eyewitnesses? Well, let's start with Peter. Peter was very well positioned in his time to give accurate information. He was one of the 12 original disciples. He was a leader of the church in the first century, especially his ministry to the Jews. What a wealth of information could be gathered from Peter. We have every reason to believe that Luke would have had opportunity to talk with him. Another man who talked with, with him was Mark. Bible scholars have figured it out that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, he got most of his information, or a lot of it, from Peter. And Peter shared that with him. What about Mary? the mother of Jesus. Much of what you're going to hear in Luke 1 and Luke 2 coming up this time of year has to do with Mary. She probably was still living. I mean, it's a good possibility she was. She wouldn't have been that old. It's thought that she was rather young when she gave birth to Jesus. Think of what an opportunity that was for Luke to talk to someone like Mary. And much of what his information, Luke 1 and 2, especially Luke 1, would have come from interview with her. How about uh, Joanna? You don't know much about Joanna in the Bible, do we? Maybe you've run across her name. Joanna was healed by Jesus in one of his miracles. He was with Jesus. She was with Jesus on his last missionary, his last uh, journey to the cross. She was at the tomb where Jesus had been laid, and interestingly, she was the wife of one of the stewards in King Herod's court. Talk about a wealth of information from that lady. Luke would have had opportunity to talk with her. How about Matthias? Matthias was the one who took over for Judas Iscariot. Now they're only 11, so they want to make it 12 disciples, 12 apostles. So Matthias, we read about in Acts chapter 1, and it said there that we were looking for someone who had been with us during the ministry of Jesus and was a witness to the resurrection. Otherwise, they would not have had him come into their group. Acts 21 tells us about Philip living in Caesarea with Paul, one time visiting him. In verse 18, he talks about Paul being with James, the brother of Jesus, one of the original disciples, and all the elders. James was not one of the original disciples, but he was around during Christ's ministry, obviously. And all the elders in Jerusalem. It was quite a, quite a meeting there at that, at that time. A lot of information there that Luke could call upon to indicate uh, truth to Theophilus. What about the 500 brothers we're told about in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 that were eyewitnesses of the resurrection? Plenty of time for people to say, now you've got to tell the truth. Now you didn't really see Jesus raised from the dead. Here are 500 of them who said, 
I did, I did, I did, I did. Luke's taking all these notes down. A lot of information, a lot of good eyewitness accounts. And while roaming around Palestine, he had opportunity to visit villages and homes and buildings, to go to Bethlehem, Galilee, Golgotha, the empty tomb, and so forth. Not totally did that, but certainly had opportunity to do that. That helps put our faith and confidence in what he has to say. He says, back in our text now, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. These were true servants of the Lord that God raised up in that early first century to enable a man like Luke to obtain the information that he needed. And we need to keep in mind that as Luke is writing this, we're certainly understanding that the Holy Spirit was guiding him so that everything he wrote down was accurate. Every letter, every word, every sentence in that original document. And what we have here is a very faithful translation of those original documents. Well, how did he pull all this information together? What method did he use? He tells us there, uh, it seemed good to me also, verse 3, having followed all things closely for some time past. Theophilus, let me tell you, it was by diligent and careful investigation. I followed everything to its source in order to obtain an accurate account of these matters. I tracked down everything I could to be satisfied myself that it was true. And now I'm passing it on to you. Now, he says all things, not every detail in Christ's life and ministry, of course, but certainly his primary teachings, his primary commands. And he arranged all this together. This is how Luke is different from the many back up in verse 1. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative, but Luke now is having a more orderly arrangement of his material, a fuller amount of his material to pass on, to write an an orderly account a systematic narrative, not like the broken, incomplete little writings of these many people who had already started writing something about Jesus. Number four, what about Luke's accuracy? How did he do? Is he reliable? You know, the gospel message is a wonderful message. Jesus died for sinners was raised again for their justification that they might be declared guilty and not guilty in God's sight. It's a wonderful message. That's why we call it good news. Good news for the sinner, the one who's convicted, realizing I'm out of touch with God. I need to get right with the Lord. That's how you do it, through Jesus. But that message has no spiritual value. It has no historical foundation. It's one thing to believe these nice little things, but if there's nothing undergirding it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we do not preach that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, our preaching is vain, it's empty, and your faith is empty. Your faith is vain. What in the world are you trying to do? Fool yourself? Fool other people? Unless you have that strong foundation. So how did you do? Let me quote Four different men from four different nationalities and their statements. First of all, we go to Scotland, Sir William Ramsay, a prominent 
church historian from the Church of Scotland. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Luke is an historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historical sense. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature at greater length while he touches lightly or omits entirely much that was valueless for his purpose. In short, this author should be placed along the very greatest of historians. Let's go to Germany. Otto Piper, German theologian. Wherever modern scholarship has been able to check up on the accuracy of Luke's work, the judgment has been unanimous. He is one of the finest and ablest historians in the ancient world. How about Norval Gildenheis, Bible scholar in the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa? One of the most phenomenal changes that have taken place in the field of New Testament studies during the past years is that relating to the criticism of the historical reliability of Luke as author. By eminent critics, Luke was regarded as a hopeless, unreliable author. Towards the end of the last century, however, he's writing in the 20th, so you're referring to the late 1800s. Towards the end of the last century, the researches of men like Ramsey, Harnack, Hawkins, and Deisman brought to light masses of surprising facts that have confirmed the historical accuracy of the statements in Luke and Acts, which were formerly condemned as fictitious. In consequence, a complete changeover has been brought about in the opinions concerning the historical trustworthiness of the works of Luke. And let's come to our own country. Dr. Ned Stonehouse, longtime professor of New Testament, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He says the prologue gives explicit expression to the conviction, which obviously all the writers of the New Testament share, that Christianity is true and is capable of confirmation by appeal to what has happened. For Paul, Christianity stood or fell with the objective reality of certain happenings, which took place in the full light of day, in the midst of a considerable company who made up the membership of the Christian church, were reported by competent witnesses, and become widely known. Now let me ask you, if you were writing such a history about some person or an event or a group, wouldn't you want somebody like Luke to gather the information and write it out for you? He was very accurate indeed. And that brings us to our fifth and last point, a very important one, Luke's purpose. We've kind of hinted at it. Let's deal with it a little more specifically. Why did Luke write this to this man of honor and respect, Theophilus? Well, he tells us at verse 4, that you may have certainty, certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Full evidence, proof, confirmed by reliable testimony. Theophilus, that's why I'm writing this. 
You've asked some questions, and I'm trying to help you with this. By the way, it says you, the things you have been taught, the Greek word has to do with the word catechism. He had been catechized, whether it was strictly questions and answers or simply a more systematic way of looking at different truths about who was Jesus, uh, who's God, who's, what about the Holy Spirit, what's the church, those kinds of things. Those are, the office would be interested in those. It seems that Theophilus had been bothered by something that came to his attention, whether it was questioning the resurrection, Jesus. Gnosticism was a philosophical movement very popular in the first century, and one of the things they taught was the Bible, the scriptures of the Christians are historically unreliable. Had he run across that teaching? Somebody at work, whatever, had shared that with him. We don't know that, of course. Maybe he simply needed more factual information. And if I may say this kind of in passing, no one will be convinced of the truth of Christianity who does not make investigation and seriously set himself to the task. A lot of people are very critical of Christianity in our day, aren't they? Especially in our country. They simply dismiss the Bible. They dismiss the things about Jesus. There's just so much myth and so on. How many of them have really paid attention to the scriptures, taken a careful investigation of it to find out is it true or is it not true? Now granted, the Lord still has to open up the heart to understand it. But the Lord uses means to do that. And so we would say to unbelievers, to the unbelieving world, come, we invite you, take a look at this book. Examine it. Ask questions about it. We're prepared for that. And in Reformed churches, and certainly in many evangelical churches, there are men and women who have done that, who have set forth the reliability of the Scriptures, the Word of God, that we can believe it. But what a great objective this was for Luke to write this to this man. That you may know the certainty what you believe. Theophilus, I know you've been taught a lot of stuff here. We want you to be certain that it's true. And I would think that each one of you here would have that desire. I, I want to be sure of this, especially young people who are being bombarded from all kinds of anti-Christian ideas and sources. How important it is you listen to your parents as they seek to tr- bring you into the Scriptures, the Word of God, and you need to ask questions. Feel free to do that. It's a good time in your life to ask the questions about Christ and about the Christian faith. John himself had a similar objective, John twenty thirty one. He said, I've written a lot of things, a lot of things about Jesus I couldn't touch upon, but these things I have written are written unto you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. John had the same objective. Jesus was no small-town reformer, no fake prophet, no charlatan. In words and deeds, he demonstrated that he was the actual Son of God in human flesh. And we'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. Thus, while Luke's immediate audience was Theophilus, his intermediate group was people in the first century, and his ultimate group were the nations. In the 24th chapter of Luke, he gives the emphasis upon the gospel going to the nations, which encompasses we who are here Today have been privileged to hear that 
wonderful message of the gospel. So I would ask you this morning, are you certain of your faith? If not, you better get that straightened out. Better take a closer look at the scriptures. Ask God to open up them up to you. But if you are rather firm in your faith, you don't say, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm gracious, grateful for how the Lord has enabled me to understand much of this. Don't stop growing. Don't stop learning. Don't stop floating along with a minimal knowledge of the scriptures, but make sure they become part of your life. I close with this quotation from Matthew Henry. There is a certainty in the gospel of Christ. There is that therein which we may build upon. And those who have been well instructed in the things of God should give diligence to know the certainty of those things. To not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. That we may be able to give a reason of the hope that is in us. So you see, Luke wrote, not only for Theophilus, but for you and for me. Join me in prayer. Father, how we thank you for your word, its accuracy, its power, its clarity in places enough that we can understand our sinfulness and our need of a Savior, but also deep enough that we can never fully explore all this wonderful teachings. Lord, increase our faith. May the Spirit of God minister to our hearts even this very day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.